welcome once again to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here today with Professor Akil Amar. No surprise. Hey, welcome. Andy. Hey. Good to see you. So it's, what, a week, two weeks, a week until then your book comes out, The Words That Made Us. Is that right? Can't wait. What's it like for an author so close to publishing date? What's it like for a nine-year-old so close to a Christmas day or his, his birthday, you know, you're just a lot of, uh, of anticipation. What, what's Santa going to bring me? Or, you know, what, what are mom and dad going to give me? How will, they, you know, will people like it? Well, I think judging from the response so far, the answer is yes. Uh, as we mentioned last time, um, the book is available on amazon.com and other uh, outlets now. And you can read the first chapter in the preface uh, on the look inside feature uh, on Amazon. So uh, go do that uh, after the podcast. So um, today we're going to uh, switch gears a little bit. This is a, a podcast on the Constitution, but we've spent remarkably little time speaking about the Supreme Court. And uh, in a way, I think that's quite instructive. We've talked about the constitutional role of the other branches and so forth. Um, but nevertheless, the Supreme Court undoubtedly has a role to play, and it's in the news these days. Um, President Biden has convened a, a commission. Um, what, is the, uh, what is the purpose of this commission? Uh, to, it's a commission to advise Biden, which, who may, to make recommendations in effect to Biden about the judiciary, and he may in effect make recommendations to Congress, as a, a proposed legislation, as it were, um, that may or may not do something. <laughs> So, you know, during the campaign, um, there were calls for uh, so-called court packing, enlarging the size of the Supreme Court, uh, or even enlarging the size of the federal judiciary in general. Um, so how does the court size get determined? So let's go back to first principles. Let's look at our copy of the Constitution, and when you open up the Constitution, first of all, you see Article 1, that's the legislature. Article 2, that's the executive. Article 3, that's judiciary. It's third out of three. And it's the shortest of the three articles. And um, there's a lot of specificity about the size and shape of the House of Representatives and the size and shape of the Senate and the size and shape of the Electoral College. And there's nothing about the size and shape, really, of the judiciary other than that there's going to be a Supreme Court and maybe there'll be lower courts. Um, and these are all signals. There are additional ones that the courts really were third out of three. They were last and least. Um, they weren't expected, I think, at the founding to play, um, and the Supreme Court in particular wasn't at the founding, I think, expected to play the ginormous role that it has come to play, um, the role of the 800-pound gorilla telling other branches what to do um, on big issues all the time. Um, and here's the proof. Um, because the House is really important, um, uh, there were weeks of debate at the Philadelphia Convention um, about the balance and effect between big states and small states and between state, slave states and, and free states. So the House was gonna be proportional um, uh, and the Senate was going to have s uh, state equality. Okay, so that's the big state, small state balance. And the House was going to count uh, slaves at three-fifths. That's the slave state, free state balance. So a lot of energy into 
conversations about uh, House and Senate size and, and shape. Similar debates about the Electoral College, which is going to determine the presidency. There's going to be one president, but debates about um, who's going to pick that. And, and in effect, the compromises about the House and Senate get um, translated into the presidency because the, the Electoral College is basically composed um, uh, by uh, giving each state the same number of Electoral College seats as its House of Representatives allocation and its Senate allocation, that is House of Representatives plus two additional electors for each state um, uh, to correspond to the two senators. So a lot of, of textual specificity about House and Senate and about Electoral College, um, next to nothing about the judiciary. There's going to be a Supreme Court. Congress can provide by law for lower federal courts, and that's about it. Um, oh, and the Constitution pretty much clearly tells us it's Congress that's going to decide these questions by statute. Congress, by law, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, can um, uh, make all laws necessary and proper for implementing uh, the, the, and the structures of the other branches. So Congress, by law, decides how many cabinet officers they're going to be and um, and, and what the divisions between their powers are. Um, is there going to be a secretary of uh, uh, war, um, or is there going to be a you know, cabinet secretary of army and navy? Um, um, is there going to be a treasury department that's um, separate from a commerce department, or are you going to put all that in, in, in one um, uh, uh, entity? So Congress decides the size of the cabinet and allocation of of uh, uh, responsibilities among cabinet officers, and so too, Congress by law uh, decides how many justices they're going to be, and how many lower court judges they're going to be, and and within certain parameters, what the jurisdiction of these courts will be. Again, within certain constraints that the Constitution sets out. So, when is the first time that Congress actually does this? The uh, famous Judiciary Act of 1789. Um, Congress convenes in 1788, and, uh, uh, and George Washington, the first thing they do basically is count the electoral votes. George Washington wins. He wins unanimously. We've talked about that. So he's summoned to the national capital, which at that point was New York. Um, once he's in place, you can start passing laws because, you know, without a president in place, you can't present bills to a president. So first the House and Senate materialize um, in the spring of 17. Uh, 88. Then uh, George Washington takes his oath of office on April 30th, I think, of, of that year. And then they can start passing laws. And at the end of that first session, September of 1789, the Judiciary Act of 1789 passes, and it provides for a certain number of lower court judgeships and a certain number of Supreme Court slots. And what is the number of the Supreme Court slots at first? They're going to be a total of six justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. One chief justice and five associate justices for to repeat a total of six. Not nine, which is what we have today, but six. So it seems a little strange that they would have chosen an even number. It seems odd that they would have chosen an even number. An even uh, number. How odd. Yes. Because, you know... 
we think now, oh, you know, one, one justice uh, retires and, oh, my God, we have eight. How are we going to decide anything? It's going to be, you know, four, four on everything. You know, what's going to happen, et cetera. And in my new book, which I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds, I actually give the readers the answer to this puzzle. Why six? Because I didn't quite understand the answer before. Um, in my earlier book, America's Constitution and Biography, for example, I say, oh, the fact that it's six is a sign that they're not expecting the Supreme Court to decide all the big issues all the time because otherwise they would have um, chosen an, uh, an odd number rather than an even number. So I saw that back um, uh, in 2005. Um, uh, and so they were more expecting, I said, the Supreme Court to basically monitor the states. It was going to be like a federal agency. And if it's a federal agency, that, that, then it's no different or not that different than the post office or the customs office or something like that. Let Congress st structure it, um, uh, uh, just like various cabinet departments or something. So that much I understood, but I never quite figured out, well, why six in particular and, and what's that all about? And... I didn't understand that because I didn't start the story earlier enough. Early enough, my other book kind of started with the Philadelphia Convention, um, and uh, then leading to the ratification process. But this new book starts earlier. It starts in 1760 with the um, run up to the American Revolution, and the key point is, you know, at the beginning of my story in this new book, Chapter One, which Andy, you helped me on a lot. It was okay before you saw it, but oh, it's a lot better now. And it is on the look-in uh, feature of Amazon. If people want to read the whole thing for free, they can. You have to make it to all, the whole the end, because there's a wow finish um, at the end of chapter one. But, but don't start with the end. <laughs> yes, no peeking, no cheating. Um, so, um, but the point is, when I start my story in 1760, uh, the Americans are um, very happy with the British. They're celebrating the fact that that, that George the Third is their new king, um, and by 1776, Britain will basically lose America, lose uh, the the loyalty and affection that was so obviously on display when I start my book, um, which is the celebration of George the Third's ascension to the throne, his, his um, uh, um, uh, coronation, if you will. Um, and you and I talk a lot about the crown because you got me hooked on it, and it's spectacular. Um, so, um, why does America um, declare independence? Or put differently, how did Britain lose America? They lost America by not listening to Americans. The center wasn't in touch with the periphery. And by the way, um, there's quite a few episodes on whales in the crown, um, where actually a similar phenomenon is described, you know, even you know in the late twentieth century. How to connect to the hinterlands, and yes, in the crown they they send Charles to to try to connect to this region that that feels that the center doesn't listen to it, doesn't take it seriously. So um, England loses America because it doesn't take people in the uh, the colonies seriously, and Americans when they successfully staged a revolution. They are creating a new central government to replace London. They say, we better not let that happen to us. And the way we're going to prevent that is by having our uh, highest court 
go out into the countryside, ride circuit in the hinterlands so that they'll go out, spend time with local juries, um, with um, other local officials. They'll, be, they'll keep their ears open. Um, they'll report back when they, when they meet together in the national capital what, what the rumblings are out there in uh, the, the, the countryside. They'll explain to folks in the countryside why the central government is doing certain things. So, so the central government will not lose touch with the people in a far-flung continent. The justices will bring justice to every man's door. And if that's the idea, then the key point of the Supreme Court is not, as we think today, to sit on bank, that is, all together, and, and decide all sorts of important things, but to ride circuit. And since America is a vast place, given uh, techno- uh, transportation technology at the time, America divides, um, the, the, the first Congress divides America into three basic regions, basically um, New England, the Mid-Atlantic, and the Lower South. Um, so three circuits... Um, each one will have two circuit justices who will come from that region and, and, and travel in that region. So the key, and, and remember this later on, this point, because it's going to come up even for today, the key is that, yes, six is an even number, but it's nicely divisible, and it's nicely divisible by, in this case, the key number, which is three, which is the number of geographic circuits. So that's why it's six, so that you can have two justices for each of the three circuits so that America won't lose um, uh, its, um, the affection of, of, of the people in the hinterlands the way England had done uh, prior to the American Revolution. There's sort of a hint of that same theme uh, in terms of the size of the House, right? George Washington is not happy at the end of the convention that the House is too, is too small. He wants the House members of the House of Representatives to, to be... Um, sufficiently large so that the representatives um, are... Because um, if, if, if... Let's imagine, for example, you only had... Because um, uh, the text actually permits this when you read it, actually. It, it says, um, oh, you have to have at least one House member uh, for every state. Suppose you had only one... You only had one House member of every state. Well, that would be preposterous. That'd be 13 House members. Seven would be a quorum. Four would be a majority, but each house member would be co- tra- covering so large an area that he couldn't really be familiar with all the, the local details. So it's, um, th- these issues do come up um, in debates about house size as well. Absolutely right. Although I wouldn't want to you know, mislead our audience. There were other considerations, questions of corruption, if the house is too small as well, that it might be corruptible. All sorts but, of issues. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the only thing. So, so now we have nine. Before we had six, nine is not. Oh, big. let me mention actually. Just since you're talking about it, let's bring the Senate in. Remember, we've talked a little bit about the decision of 1789 and uh, the president's power um, over um, to, to fire cabinet officers. That's kind of an important thing that cabinet officers answer to the president. Um, one thing that that means is that presidents can fire cabinet officers without getting the Senate's say so. That turns out to be good for the Senate because it means that the Senate can go on recess and mend fences, um, go back to their home districts and, um, and, and show their face and show the flag. Um, and that's an important thing. If um, a president needed the Senate to agree anytime the president wanted to fire someone or sack someone, 
you'd basically have to keep the Senate around as a kind of permanent council, a permanent cabinet, an advisory body. And the Senate wouldn't like that in the end because it wouldn't be able, in effect, to ride circuit because the senators are going to have to shuttle back and forth because um, otherwise, um, why should the people re-elect them if um, they've lost touch with um, the, the voters and, in the Senate's case, the state legislature that elected them and will need to re-elect them? Of course, it's not only a matter of the decision of 1789, which has to do with essentially dismissing uh, cabinet, uh, cabinet members or other, um, other members of the executive branch. It's also recess appointments, because if the Senate, if the, if the president couldn't fill a vacancy in the absence of the Senate, then the Senate couldn't go on recess either. All true. So it's, it's both ways. Um, okay, so we were six, now we're nine. Um, nine, uh, you know, it's true, it's divisible by three, but we've got more than three circuits now. Um, and the justices no longer really ride circuit as a but, practical matter. But that does continue for a while, doesn't it? Until through, through most of the 19th century, at least formally. Um, uh, uh, but circuit riding becomes decreasingly important as America begins to knit together. I mean, one, one time that it matters and that I recall is when, uh, when President Lincoln uh, suspends habeas corpus and Rod, uh, Chief Justice Tawney rules against him, but he does so in his capacity as a circuit justice. In, and it's in a thing called a chamber's opinion. Right. right. Um, okay. So, um, but of course, Lincoln himself uh, is not a judge, but he rides circuit himself in Illinois. Lawyers ride circuit, and within states, state judges are sometimes um, riding circuit. So, um, um, the, the, the basic, and, and, and I told you just in effect, the senators ride circuit. They go to the national capital, and they go back to their home state, and then back to the national capital, and back and forth. And so do House members. Today, um, House members often do that every week. They, they take a jet home uh, for the weekend um, because this, uh, there's this tension between serving in the national capital and showing your face back home. Of course, now I think the, this is a little off the subject, but I think the, uh, the pendulum swung a little too far the other way because uh, it's not so much riding circuit as riding, uh, riding the phones, riding the fundraising. Um, and, and that distances the congressmen not only from the, the rank and file, but also from each other um, in a way which is arguably not helpful. Um, okay, so how do we get to nine? Uh, because initially the size of the Supreme Court is kind of dictated by the number of circuits. And as America expands, um, we get more geographic circuits. Um, at one point, actually, um, there were 10 justices, um, and, uh, and then it was reduced uh, right at the beginning of the Civil War, and it was reduced to nine. But we have gone in American history from six down to five, back up to six, and then new circuits were added um, as, uh, with westward expansion, uh, again at a maximum of ten, um, settling at nine, and it's basically been nine really ever since about 1870. So I think that most people would agree that there's nothing really wrong with nine as a number, except that it's, some people feel it's not the particular nine that they want. That's it. They don't like this nine, but here's the problem. And some people say, pack the court. Let's, you know, let's add five um, that Biden will appoint and that a Senate that's now controlled by the Democratic Party will um, uh, confirm. Well, that sounds great unless you 
think about what's going to happen then in round two. Okay, so fine, now we're at 14. And you think the Republicans, next time they control the House, the Senate, and the presidency, are going to just sit still? They're going to say, well, those Democrats, you know, they added five. Um, So now that we're in charge, House, Senate, and and presidency, because now actually if there were five new Democrat appointees, they'd have a, a majority of of the court. There'd be 14, right? And there'd be five plus three. They'd have, you know, eight of the 15 or something like that. uh, Nine, maybe whatever. And so the Republicans say, okay, now that we're in charge, we're going to add another 10. And then the next time the Democrats come into into full power, they can say, oh, well, we're going to add another 15. And the concern is it spirals out of control. Well, this is nothing new right now. In other words, you know, there was a court packing attempt uh, under President Roosevelt. Um, so I think the issue is on the table now because of a sense on the Democrats' part that they are they are aggrieved uh, in their mind um, by the you know affair uh, uh, the affair Garland um, l'affaire Garland and uh, now I don't think we need to re- review that in in detail but. Um, I think that's why the issue has come to a head now. Right. And I think that there's, because I think adding justices in the long run could destabilize an equilibrium that has come to exist, um, that there's a better way to approach court reform than court packing. Let me just say one other thing, just so we define our terms. It's one thing to add justices um, um, for... um, non-substant, non-outcome um, reasons, like, oh, we, we just have geographic expansion, we have new circuits, so we need new circuit justices. So it's one thing to change the size of the court for reasons having nothing to do with the outcome. That's um, how we went from, we started with six, and, and how we and eventually got to, to nine as new circuits came on board. Um, uh, and we went from um, two justices per circuit, two for each, we started with three circuits, to one justice. So we actually, in effect, had nine circuits at one point. And, okay, so, so um, that's one thing, to add justices for reasons having nothing to do with outcome. It's even, um, there's a second um, uh, uh, thing. Okay, Congress adds new justices because they don't like the rulings of the current ones, but it's a bipartisan dissatisfaction. Congress in general thinks, let's say, the court is too uppity and invalidates too many congressional statutes. Okay, that's for reasons of outcome. You know, uh, it's not that you don't like this current number, you just don't like you know, how they're voting. Um, but that's less likely to spiral out of control because that's Congress as an institution pushing back against the court. But now let's distinguish that from partisan um, manipulation of court size. And my concern is if it's a partisan manipulation, if it's the Democrats doing this today, that's something that could spiral out of control because then um, in game theoretic terms, that unsettles a kind of focal point equilibrium, which is nine, um, and invites um, one good turn, you know, deserves another, one bad turn deserves another. That invites the Republicans to um, do uh, a, a partisan reprisal of sorts, and maybe not even tit for tat, double tit for tat, triple tit for tat, okay? You did this, we're going to do that, and then some. 
And if that starts to happen, well, then what about round three and run round four? And then things start to spiral out of control. And that was what you heard, I think, in Justice Breyer's voice, in effect, when uh, a while back um, he gave a speech at Harvard uh, expressing some concern, especially about partisan court packing, which, to repeat, is different than changing the size um, for um, other uh, uh, reasons other than outcome um, uh, uh, like new circuits being added or changing it in ways that are about the, the current court outcomes but that are not based on sharp partisan um, disaffection. And actually, we, we've sort of seen this um, in Britain, in the House of Lords. The House of Lords was you know, doubled in size because it, they didn't like the, the outcome of the of the votes from the House of Lords, this is you know over a thousand lords, I believe. So it's it became a completely unwieldy organization. There are other reasons that the lords are are disempowered, but uh, but it, it it did it did didn't work out too well. Uh, one of the, the very phrase "packing" initially, I think, comes into popular usage um, in 1911 in Britain with a Lords Packing Plan that um, was very much. Um, uh, familiar to Franklin Roosevelt when he come up, came up with his court packing plan. One other thing about Roosevelt's plan, which failed, even though he controlled overwhelmingly the House and the Senate, Democrats controlled the Congress, and yet his plan in the end failed, is he wasn't entirely honest about his motivation. He said, oh, this is, a, this is just a kind of a good government reform. The justices are old and they're not keeping up with their docket and, and let's um, have six new justices. Let's, let's um, uh, have 15 uh, so that they can um, be more efficient. And actually the justices said, we're keeping up with our workload just fine and actually 15 cooks... Uh, that's that's going to actually uh, make it maybe more complicated to to brew this broth. Um, nine is actually maybe going to be easier than fifteen. So Roosevelt was a little too clever in not basically saying um, the reason for his plan is he didn't like the current nine justices and he wanted to add some so that his um, uh, uh, his New Deal plans would stand a better chance of being approved by the court. One final thing about Roosevelt, because this is going to come up later in our discussion, he was very frustrated because for the first time in American history, he went, um, an, an incoming president went a full four years without getting even a single appointment. And there are going to be some reasons for that, having to do in part with, oh, justices on the court, not resigning to accommodate Roosevelt and all the rest. But he was frustrated because he had been elected indeed, then re-elected, rather resoundingly after Americans saw what he wanted to do. And the court was striking down lots of his reform proposals that he thinks he had a mandate to do. Um, and in his first four years, for the first time in American history, a president went four years and got zero new appointments. Um, and it's a larger court. It's one thing to not have an appointment if it's a, a six-person court, um, but it's a nine-person court and there's no vacancy in four years. Uh, Roosevelt thought that that was you know, really um, a, a real cause of, of um, frustration on his part. And he had other reasons to be frustrated with the court as well. Um, he probably wouldn't have been frustrated about not getting an appointment if they were ruling his way on, on, on most cases. But um, so you might say that, well, perhaps this, uh, you know, this, this commission uh, of President Biden's is, uh, is DOA because this is a, this is a non-starter, the, you know, uh, court packing, as we've been talking about. But nevertheless, um, 
you know, perhaps partisan court packing is not in, in the interests of, of the court or the country, but there are other problems that one might identify with the court, and you just alluded to, to one of them, which is the question of uh, strategic resignation or, or you know, or delayed not. resignation or no, re- or no resignation. Um, one might add uh, the fact that um, the, the confirmation process has become unwieldy and, and uh, some might say, destructive. There's also the question of justices uh, that are younger and younger being appointed or that being a priority. Um, so there's any number of, of, of issues that would seem to surround the rigidity of nine justices and life tenure. So do you believe that there's room for reform in these areas? I do. Um, I'm going to uh, offer a proposal for our audience, and I'm hoping maybe, um, if invited, to offer the same proposal to the Judicial Reform Commission, if invited to be a witness. Um, and let me begin by just saying, if our current system of life tenure is so great, um, why is it the case that no state, basically, except Rhode Island, has that model, and none of the um, apex courts in the great democracies around the world, um, Britain, uh, Germany, France, India, whatever, um, uh, I- I- Israel, um, uh, has uh, this same mo- uh, art, uh, model of life tenure. So I think there's a better model, um, and it involves term limits for the justices, which would give them a lot of independence, um, but it wouldn't quite be the same as the life tenure model. I'm going to argue a little later that we can do this without a constitutional amendment, which is one of its virtues. But let me just begin by saying if the, uh, the current model of life tenure is so great, why does almost no state copy it except Rhode Island um, and no foreign nation copy it? So I'm, and, and I think we can learn from that. We can learn from the experience of actual democracies that there may be other ways of doing it. I firmly believe in judicial independence. And I think some states do it very poor, uh, uh, have uh, uh, poor models of, of the judiciary. They have partisan uh, elections, um, uh, competitive partisan elections um, that in which judges are... Uh, promising to, to do this or do that if, if elected, in effect, winkingly um, sometimes because they're not supposed to make promises of a certain sort. Um, so some states do it very poorly, but the best states have models in which there's either mandatory retirement at a certain age or a fixed term, you know, often something like 15 years um, of judicial service. That's how uh, a lot of countries around the world do it, great democracies. And I think we can learn from that and we can tweak um, those models just a bit um, and come up with a better reform suggestion than court packing. Um, in a nutshell, um, and uh, uh, I'm going to propose uh, keeping the court size at nine, not monkeying with that. That's kind of been settled for a long time and, and there are dangers of unsettling it, which we just discussed keeping the court size at nine, but moving to 18-year terms for the justices. And I'm going to try to see how how many ways in which this will actually be an improvement, just as we counted all the ways in which the presidential succession law was actually 
um, imbecilic. And I think we got up to 16, 17, 18, something like that. I'm going to see if I can get up to at least eight, maybe 10 different, though complementary ways in which 18-year term limits for the justices would be a better model of judicial independence and constitutional democracy than the one we have today. And later I'm going to try to defend the idea that we can do all of this without a constitutional amendment, just by mere statute, the same kind of statute we would need, for example, to, to pack the court or, or, or modify its, its structure. Okay. And, of course, there are going to be um, some issues in how do we get there, how do we, you know, but uh, why don't you describe the... Uh, this proposal for us. Uh, okay. I'm going to just go through, try, just, and I'll try to do it kind of quickly, um, uh, and, and you're going to keep score about whether I'm double counting. I'm going to try to do better than the last time <laughs> I kept score. When I, that's why we put the Monty Python uh, clip up there last time. Yes. The Spanish so, Inquisition. So, um, number one is um, you alluded to it. If you have life tenure, um, um, you're going to maybe have um, an arms race. You're going to get justices who maybe who are too young. You're going to have an arms race in which the, um, uh, the Democrats are frustrated, um, so they put on someone very young who's going to be on the court for a long time, they hope, actually. So they put on a 50-year-old. And then the Republicans, though, then when they're in charge, say, oh, we're going to put on a 47-year-old and then a 44-year-old. An arms race going lower and lower and lower in age. So you're going to, the, the concern is you're going to have justices who um, uh, maybe don't have enough seasoning. So the problem of uh, arms race and too young. That's okay. one. Got it. Okay. At the other end of the age spectrum, people just stay forever and they're too old and their arteries harden and most justices, honestly, do have and historically in the past have um, done their best work earlier in their careers. Most justices, not all, um, not for example, I think Justice Breyer, for example, for whom I clerk, but but most justices, more than half of them, when we look back, did their best work in the first half of their career, not the second. And we have superannuated justices and uh, under the current model, and that's not so great. So that's a different problem of life tenure. They stay too long, um, and especially because seniority means. Um, that the longer they stay, the more seniority they accrue, the more um, majority opinions they get to um, be assigned or assigned to themselves, and that's not so great. Let's just, uh, for the benefit of our audience, explain why that happens. Um, the Chief Justice assigns the opinion if he is in the majority. If he's not in the majority, then the most senior justice in, that is in the majority assigns the opinion. Right. Okay, so that's two. Third, um, the problem of superannuated justices, justices who are uh, old, isn't just an individual problem of the justice, but it creates um, um, a problem of political timing. If someone was put on the court at year X and they're on the court 40 years later, um, that's a lot of, of political time that has passed, and so you've got justices on the court who represent, in effect, um, a political coalition that's um, uh, very far in the distant past. Um, whereas 18 years, at a maximum, there's going to be 18 years between the political coalition that puts someone on the court and um, they're still wielding power on the court if they rotate off after 18 years. So they're perhaps a more representative body in that sense, in more, more democratic. Yes, it's connected to the issue that we talked about. Suppose you had perfect elections, but then you actually didn't get to start office until 
a year later or two years later or three years later or 10 years later. That would be really weird. So yes, you want to um, worry about the, the gap between the election that basically legitimized someone in a democracy and you know how long they're actually wielding, when they start wielding power and when they end wielding power um, thereafter. It's an interesting point because um, in some ways people resist the notion or they rebel against the notion that the, that the court is a political institution, that it represents a political uh, choice. And the, the, the justices, in the view of many, are supposed to make decisions you know, on, in sort of a detached oh, way. Oh, I'm going to come back to that because right now the current model is a, has less judicial independence from politics than mine. But here's my point. We pick justices politically. Um, they don't um, clone themselves. They don't um, uh, pick their own successors. Um, the Yale Law School faculty picks its own successors. You know, the Pope pick, picks cardinals who pick popes who pick cardinals in um, a, a certain self-perpetuating um, bureaucracy. That's not how our system works. Presidents and senators who are picked by voters pick justices. That's political. By design, that's actually the Constitution, and they're supposed to be judicial independence thereafter. And life tenure is judicial independence thereafter, but so would 18-year fixed terms be judicial independence thereafter, which is why it's a good model of judicial independence. And here's why it's a better model, because we talked before about justices timing their resignation. Maybe justices, for example, didn't like Franklin Roosevelt, so they stayed on particularly long. People are saying to Breyer, get off now because um, uh, uh, you are in sync with Biden and, and the current Senate. Life tenure doesn't mean that they stay for life. It means that they stay until they're ready to go and they time their resignations in political ways, which makes them more political than if they have 18-year terms. So that's four. That's a, a, it's a, a superior version of judicial independence. Okay. <clears throat> now here's five. Um, remember um, how six justices was a beautifully divisible number. It divided into three circuits. Well, 18 works really nicely because if you keep the size of the court at nine, that means justices are rotating off it's perfectly every two years. And every two years is particularly nice because, um, and, and these are really, so it's divisible, and this is going to be five and six, two different reasons why 18 is a magic number. One, the court will replenish itself um, with a new member every two years, just like every two years a third of the Senate is replenished, every two years a ninth of the Supreme Court. It's regular and steady replenishment. Um, um, so that's one nice feature. Why is that a good feature? It evens things out um, uh, and, and just creates a kind of regularity to the thing. Well, why is the Senate um, um, uh, uh, even replenish, uh, replenishment every two years a good feature? It may but, not be. Okay. Um, so, but, but I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I like it. I, I, I think um, um, it's, it's American as, uh, uh, as the Senate. Um, but it also, maybe you'll like this one better, six, it means... Each president, who serves a four-year term, so each presidential term will correspond with two picks. So let's imagine that every president's going to add a justice in his or her first year and his or her third year, and then if re-elected, um, uh, two more. And that regularization 
means that you don't have um, the the randomness, the unevenness of um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt getting zero picks, Jimmy Carter getting zero picks, George W. Bush in his first four years getting zero picks, and Donald Trump getting three. You know, in fact, I, I, I think that it's not so much that the president's I mean, it takes the form of the president getting an equal uh, number of picks, but what it really means is that the people get an equal number of picks, because you know you can we can feel like people are on the court for forty years. You know, it's, I never voted for anybody that that uh, picked this justice, and I'm stuck with them for forty years. You know, so so my political power is more accurately reflected in the court if. And and so too for generations to follow, um, with a more regularized replenishment. So that connects up to my earlier point about it minimizes the gap between the political coalition that puts someone on the court and the power they're wielding. But here's a seventh point that I don't think is double counting. It improves our. It, it can improve our presidential elections from the point of view of the electorate because now they know with certainty. Not only that there will be two vacancies in, in the presidential term and they're voting on who's president. We've talked so much about how important it is that you cast a sensible presidential vote. And one of the things now that you know for sure, because Bob Woodward said, oh, last, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, rec- in a recent uh, interview on, on this podcast, a lot of times you don't know what's going to happen over the next four years. Um, so um, you have to care about character and competence, but you will know for certain that at least two seats will come open. There could always be a, a death or early resignation, and we could talk about that, but, but you know that two seats will come open. You as a voter, you'll know which two seats they are. Oh, it's going to be the, the seat number four and seat number seven or whatever, um, if we just n- numbered the, the seats. Which two justices are going to be term limited in the next four years? You could actually have an intelligent conversation um, every four years, quadrennially, when you're picking your president, about what those justices actually did on the court, where they actually are, are swing or particularly influential, and therefore what vacancies in those two seats is likely to mean for the court. So you can have an intelligent conversation, whereas now it's actually kind of icky because if we're going to try to talk about the court, well, we have no idea who's going to rotate off or not. Um, and the conversation is, oh, that person kind of looks old. They're, you know, Are they going to die in the next four years? Are they going to get cancer in the next four years? Are they going to have some a personal um, uh, 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 catastrophe that's going to require their resignation or something? That's an icky conversation to have. It's all too pers- uh, um, altogether too personal. Here, we can have a more sensible, sane democratic, sober conversation about where the court is and where it um, might go because of the two vacancies that we can predict with certainty because we have a regularity to um, the, the uh, rotation process. So, so um, and from the point of view of the voter. Well, certainly, I think that's a valid point. And also, th- I don't really see any downside to that. In other words, to having each president, ha- other than if there's a president you don't like having to. But yeah, but it, e- it, it, even, it evens everything mm-hmm. out. Yes. Uh, eighth, uh, because we know that a person isn't going to stay longer than 18 years, that reduces the temperature a little bit in the confirmation process. There's not the concern 
that, oh, uh, my gosh, th- this, this justice who, who, let's say, is 50 years old um, is going to stay there for 40 years. Because um, whether they're 50 or 60 or 70, 18 years and out. And, and uh, that, they say, reduces the, 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 the temperature um, uh, because there's just less at stake in any given appointment. The justices on average of late have been sta- uh, staying longer than 18 years. Um, and, uh, and that just also, this is maybe a ninth point, just gives them kind of too much power. Um, uh, and it goes to their heads. Th- this model um, maybe conduces a little bit more to judicial humility. So I think that's a, a ninth point. A tenth is that not only do we equalize power basically among presidents. So Obama, uh, excuse me, uh, Trump doesn't get three compared to uh, um, Carter's zero, even though they they both were one-term presidents. Um, uh, So it equalizes power across presidents, but it also, I think, nicely smooths things out within a presidency if we have... uh, one nomination in the first year and one nomination in the third year, one before the midterm, one after, neither one in actually an election year itself. Um, so um, it, it, it just regularizes and calms things down, not just across presidential, uh, across presidencies, but within presidential terms. So I think that's a, a tenth virtue. Okay, so it's ten, quite virtuous. Ten's a good round number. It was, you know, good enough for um, uh, Moses uh, uh, and Yahweh, um, and uh, and for the Bill of Rights, at least as as eventually ratified. There were there were twelve original proposals, but uh, only the first ten, only excuse me, uh, ten got uh, got ratified uh, to to create our so called Bill of Rights. So ten ten's a good round number. It's possible I could squeeze an eleventh or twelfth, um, but but wow, one. Uh, stone, ten birds, ten. Um, uh, Andy's laughing because uh, in the book there's there are extended metaphors about stones and birds, and I kind of mixed up my stones and birds in an early draft, and and he corrected me on all of that. Um, here's maybe an eleventh or twelfth, but maybe I've already counted this. One, it brings the U.S. Constitution system or our, uh, our our federal judicial system a little bit more in sync with the best state models. Um, and with the best models around the world. And, uh, and, and this is the key point, it won't require a constitutional amendment. Um, and maybe this is 13, because I know the number of colonies. It won't spiral out of control. It's a stable system once we get it up and running. There are going to be some transition issues to, to get to this. Um, but it doesn't spiral out of control. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. I think it's a superior version of independence, and you heard all the other arguments. So, so depending on how you count, at least ten, maybe thirteen different reasons that that this is an imp- that, that, that this is um, uh, something an, an improvement on the status quo and something definitely worth considering. So, a couple of questions. You you mentioned that it's going to increase uh, judicial independence, or at least improve it. Yes, yeah. but. You know, one thing that occurs to me is that if you have 18-year terms, um, you might have a justice that's appointed, let's say, at age 45. Mm -hmm. Um, So they'll serve to 63, pretty Mm -hmm. young still. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, very young. Um, (laughs) We say as early 60s ourselves. um, Well, that justice 
could then run for president. So, and in fact, there was a justice that, Mm -hmm. uh, at least one, that uh, was quite ambitious about running for president, not just John Marshall, but uh, William O. Douglas, I believe, uh, you know, aspired to the presidency. Oh, and Simon P. Chase, lots of them. And you've answered your own question. We've had that even in the existing system. Yes, but but with this with the current structure, there's a tremendous incentive for the justice to stay on the court. They might be president, but they might not. Okay, whereas if they don't resign from the court, they'll continue to be one of the more powerful people in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, you're removing that incentive. You're kicking them off the court. Mm-hmm. So if you have a a, a justice that is aspires to the presidency, won't they be less judicially independent and more politically conscious about, you know, uh, less interested in the law and more interested in the public's reception to what they have to say? I suppose that's a possibility, but as you yourself have identified, that has been a... a the justices have stepped down in the 20th century to run uh, for president. Charles Evans Hughes, for example. And yes, you're right. William Douglas thought about it. And, and Simon P. Chase wanted to be president. And actually, I think at least four other justices in that same era wanted to be president. And so did McLean. And, and John Marshall dreamed about it. And, uh, and uh, John Jay got electoral votes for the presidency. And actually, so did uh, John Rutledge, another early chief justice. So so that concern has uh, coexisted with uh, the, con- the current life tenure model. Um, and remember, you're envisioning someone picked at 45. I'm not sure why we'd necessarily want to pick someone at 45. We're picking someone at 45, which is maybe a little young in general, unless you're J- Joseph Story, you're a rocket scientist, right? We're John getting Kennedy we're getting forty five year old justices because of the arms race. That's mm-hmm. actually why we're getting them. Because otherwise, why not wait and and until they have a little bit more seasoning? If if that's a concern, if you're concerned that they're um, going to want to have an act three, um, act two or act three or whatever, appoint old. You can appoint someone. Oh my God! At the at the age of sixty two to just pick it in something <laughs> randomly, he says, as someone born in 1958 and therefore 62. Um, and they're, you know, actuarially probably, if they're in good health, likely to make it to 80. Now, in fact, I am not nominating myself because I'd be the world's probably worst justice because uh, um, academics don't always make good justices. But what I am saying is, I'm not sure 62 is too old, in fact, um, but right now you're unlikely to be appointed at 62 for arms race reasons because the party that, if a party um, has a slot, why should it waste it on someone who's only got 20 good years left rather than 30 or 35 or 40 good years left? That's the arms race um, and going younger and younger. Yes, I don't think this is a fatal uh, flaw, but mm. I think it's a point worth uh, worth considering. I think I think you're right. It create it, it alters the incentives for the for, you know slightly, and therefore would probably be taken into consideration. And therefore, I think it would it would actually wind up with older justices, not as like elderly, yeah. but older uh, than we're seeing now. Which, as you say, that may well be a good thing. But I think it's it's something. It, it that does feed be. it feed back into the system. Here's another way of putting it, Andy. Um, as I've said over and over, uh, the best states have models of fixed terms. Um, and I don't think this has been that much of a problem at the state level. 
the best countries around the world, I think, have models of fixed terms and or mandatory retirements at age 70 or, or 75 sometimes. Because um, uh, one issue is people are living longer than ever before. That, that feeds back into my 18-year idea. And I don't think they've had too much of a problem with young justices, um, hyper-political, stepping down after 15 or 18 years um, and running for office. And therefore, and none of that's the problem. The problem is if while they're on the court, they're basically um, acting in political ways in anticipation of... Well, that's my, that yeah, I know, my I know, I know, of course it was, um, uh, in um, anticipation of their, their political campaign. I'm just not sure we've actually seen that. Because um, remember, one of my... Thir- especially when I went up all the way to 13, I was the same. This brings a f- the federal model more into line with what our best states already are doing. Um, it tweaked it a little bit because many of the states, it's like 15 years or mandatory retirement. I picked 18 for a very specific reason because 18 fit perfectly mathematically um, with nine um, and with f- a four-year term of a presidency um, and... Um, uh, a, a two-year replenishment cycle on the model of the Senate. So I know this is kind of sounding very mathematically mysterious or something, but 18 is the magic number given 9, 2, and 4. So I assume that this would result in a uh, more shuffling in the court. In other words, there would be more people going on and off the court. Than today, than but today. not than from the court for most of its history. For most of its history, the average tenure of a justice, I think if you, if you average it out, probably wasn't 18 years. But the problem today, or the issue today, is people are living much longer than before. It's a very cushy gig, and they're not leaving, maybe even when they should leave. Uh, so here's a little story. Um, we tend to think about life tenure, and I once asked a, a very distinguished federal judge uh, now, uh, 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 about um, uh, how he was going to, um, live the rest of his life on, on the court. And, and he you know, actually talked about sort of leaving early. Um, and I sort of uh, looked at him quizzically and says, Akil, it's life tenure. It's not a life sentence. Um, so you get to leave early, and, and today you can leave for political reasons. Now, of course, 18 years also isn't quite an 18-year determinate sentence, what about leaving early? What about a justice who, for health reasons or personal reasons, needs to leave early? That's going to happen, but it won't happen in a politically strategic way because under my proposal, the uh, a re- justice who retires early is replaced basically by um, a certain kind of replacement justice who only fills out the rump of the remaining term. Um, so if you step down at year th- 13, the replacement just fills out your last five years. Um, it's just like the Senate, cause of course, and by design, because my replenishment model is like the Senate replenishment model, and if someone leaves before their six years, then someone comes in just to finish the rump of the term, and there's no incentive to, to politically game that, because if you could do it yourself... You know, you would, and at best, even at best, if you're timing your resignation, it's just to clone yourself for the remainder of the 18-year term, which was yours to begin with. So, again, um, a superior model of judicial independence because you're not timing your resignation for political purposes. 
because I, I wonder if you, you know, if you have stability on the court in the sense of people staying on a long time, you may have more comedy. Um, justices are, you know, they learn to work out their problems with each other. In The Brethren, the Bob Woodward's classic on, on the, the court, um, perhaps there are some rivalries, but you also see that the justices know they have to work with these guys for a, a long time and they, they have a ways of working things out. And the, but, if you read The Brethren, there's actually the problem of superannuated justices who have lost it and yet they still are on the court and, and who's going to tell them? That's actually also in The Brethren. So again, for most of the issues that you're raising, I just want to say, oh, they're all valid, but... States do it this way. The mm -hmm. only thing I've done is change, let's say, 15 to 18 for these magical, you know, the 18 is the magical number, given 9, 2, and 4. But, but states basically adopt this um, rotational model. Okay, well, given that this notion of 18-year terms makes sense from these various points of view, is it actually constitutional to implement it, or is there a constitutional way implement it? I think there is, and by constitutional, of course, you mean without an amendment, because with an amendment you can do all sorts of things, but an amendment is going to be very difficult to accomplish, given that it typically requires two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and three-quarters of the states. Uh, so the, 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 the gimmick or the trick um, is to see that um, technically when um, is appointed for life still, even under this new regime. Indeed, um, one is a justice for life, but one, after 18 years, rotates off, in effect, the front bench. So after 18 years, your seniority, as it were, goes down to zero, um, and it, it's... Um, uh, and you're only available, basically, you, you're, you're, you're on the court, and you're available to do all sorts of things. Um, for example, ceremonial duties, administrative duties, public relations um, uh, responsibilities, meeting with foreign uh, dignitaries, uh, 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 talking to uh, uh, t eighth graders and tenth graders when they visit the Supreme Court, um, uh, explaining to Congress why the Supreme Court needs... Um, uh, this budget for the f uh, upcoming year, maybe even also being involved in the selection of of uh, cases for the Supreme Court, the the certiorari process. Um, but maybe you, uh, cases of original jurisdiction or something like that. Maybe um, uh, uh, Jack Balkan has suggested that uh, that that may that raises some p possible complexities. I think truthfully, um, uh, but at, at the very least. Um, you're technically you're on the court. You you get life um, salary, um, and um, and your 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 title is in effect senior justice, something like that. And you'd be available to sit um, if the court were short staffed. If there weren't nine justices, you could pinch it. Which means that if there's some unexpected vacancy, let's say a. a, a a death or um, a medical resignation or something like that before eighteen-year term, you'd be you'd be available to pinch hit, and so the court would never be short-staffed. So I just say that that's uh, somewhat analogous to your proposal that ex-presidents serve on standby. 
as well uh, in, in some of the 25th Amendment scenarios. And it's analogous also to uh, what it means on a lower federal court when a judge takes senior status. Um, the judge is um, uh, given a kind of a, a reduced uh, workload and is available to pinch hit in, in a crisis, but um, isn't uh, basically on the front bench. So um, I, I think, g- given that Congress has... V- very broad power to structure the court itself. Um, we go back to the, the, the point about how Congress, uh, the point that we made earlier, that Congress has very broad power to structure the, the cabinet departments, to create a secretary, uh, a, a department of defense, or separate departments of Army and Navy, or um, separate departments of Commerce or Treasury, or one combined department. Um, so Congress... Um, f- has uh, for se- literally centuries, for example, passed statutes saying, here are the rules of evidence and procedure that apply in Supreme Court proceedings. And the Supreme Court actually upheld um, broad congressional power to do that in an opinion by none other than John Marshall in a case called Wayman versus Southern, which is 1825, I believe. So for two centuries... It's been Congress by law that regulates when the Supreme Court sits and, um, uh, in general, what procedures it follows uh, that has d- determines the size of the court that initially provided for the circuit-writing duty. The end of the 19th century phased out, in general, the circuit-writing duty that initially provided uh, that the court had to take certain cases on appeal with no real discretion in the matter that later changed that and introduced a concept called certiorari, giving the court discretion over its appellate docket. So Congress has very broad power to structure and regulate the Supreme Court. And I I think um, saying... 18 years on the front bench, and then after that you rotate to a different set of duties would be uh, pretty clearly a, a, con- a constitutional, uh, within Congress's power um, to, uh, to, to enact. Um, now in our last episode, when we talked about the filibuster, you me- we were talking about the rule of four for certiorari, and you mentioned that the Supreme Court could change the rule of four by a majority vote of the Supreme Court. Um, so that would seem to be possibly at odds. Did, did Congress delegate that uh, yes, power con- to the court? I, um, I think, in fact, in my writing on this, I basically said, unless Congress specified otherwise, otherwise or limited the court in some, some other way. So, yeah, um, uh, a lot of what the Supreme Court does, for example, you mentioned earlier the uh, practice, and it's only... A tradition that the court itself generated. It's, n- it's not based on anything in the Constitution. It's not based on any official statute. That, but, but the practice is that there's an opinion of the court in general. That didn't really emerge until John Marshall. Uh, uh, and I actually talk about that in, in the new book, that the, the practice of a written opinion for the court emerging under John Marshall. Uh, and the practice 
the tradition that it's the senior justice in the majority who decides who will take the first crack at trying to write an opinion of the court. And ex officio, the chief justice is always deemed the most senior, even if she or he was appointed um, the most recently. But ex officio, they're... Uh, that uh, the chief is seen as um, having seniority over everyone else. Okay, so so in other words, Congress can, by statute, then, with presentment to the president, or mm-hmm. um, change the the term to eighteen years with this kind kind of um, fudge. You mm-hmm. know that it's it's really still it's a life term, but yes. the conditions under which you serve vary based on how long you've been on the court. Yes. And you asked about whether senior justices should maybe sit in, in original jurisdiction cases. And, and my friend and colleague, uh, uh, Jack Balkin, who was actually on the Judicial Commission, um, has floated an idea of that sort. And the reason I hedged a little bit is there might be some complexities about who's the traffic cop to deciding sort of a, uh, in a case that's arguably original jurisdiction or arguably appellate jurisdiction, having a different group of decision makers, a different Supreme Court as such in original jurisdiction cases versus appellate jurisdiction cases, a different group of, of justices creates a kind of seam in the law uh, and, and and possible mischief. So suppose the, the senior justices go rogue and they don't really quite properly abide by um, the current justices' views of various things. Um, uh, and that doesn't matter so much if they're doing administrative functions or ceremonial functions or um, even helping to decide which cases the Supreme Court hears. But if they're actually on their own uh, joining with other justices and deciding s- Supreme Court cases, albeit in original jurisdiction, then original jurisdiction cases might, s- in effect, follow kind of one understanding of the law and appellate jurisdiction, a different understanding, because you have a different Supreme Court, in effect. And, of course, the Supreme Court, when sitting in appeal, doesn't ever take an, uh, an appeal from the Supreme Court itself sitting in original jurisdiction. That's never happened and, and would be would be weird. So... Um, uh, I think it's probably, and, and, and in general, that's not how uh, state Supreme Courts work or um, uh, other uh, um, similar uh, uh, courts. So, so I think it's going to just be best of all to keep original jurisdiction uh, the same way that it is today, decided by the entire Supreme Court on banc, um, the, the nine active justices. Okay, so it's constitutional. Congress passes a statute. Now, how does it actually happen? How do we implement this? It would have to be some kind of transition period, I assume. Indeed, and I'm not going to go into all the details of the transition today. Maybe if this idea catches fire, we can do another podcast episode and I can actually walk our audience through uh, my specific proposals, which I've actually already drafted. Um, for possible consideration uh, by the uh, uh, Biden Commission. And by the way, five of the 36 members of the Biden Commission are my former students. Uh, so, so I'm hoping that they at least would give the, the idea um, respectful attention, which is all any a- academic could ever hope for um, his or her ideas. 
uh, and uh, there are basically two transition schemes. Um, the harsh one is, okay, we want to keep it at nine um, and 18 years, and some people are already over 18, so we basically um, uh, start immediately uh, uh, whenever uh, we, we need a new um, justice imposing senior status on the existing justices. Uh, that would start with... Um, uh, by by seniority, start with uh, Thomas, who's the most senior, and then Breyer, and that's that's a harsh thing. It it, it maintains everything at nine, um, but it's quasi retroactive. When they were picked for the Supreme Court, this wasn't the rule. Now I I, I think they're still going to get their full salary, and and they're and they are technically justice for life. We've just changed the job description, which we're allowed to do by statute. We're allowed to add jurisdiction or tweak jurisdiction in all sorts of ways. But I think that seems harsh. The other transition uh, plan would temp would just maintain this schedule. Okay, Biden should get an appointment in year one and then in year three, or if the statute isn't passed uh, for a while, year three, and then if he, get, if he gets it, year five or year one of the, the next president and, and so on. And there would be a temporary increase in the size of the judiciary because we, we just keep adding people even if um, resignations and deaths um, don't um, uh, occur. And so uh, the size of the court would temporarily increase and then gradually come back down to nine and, until we were in a new equilibrium. Um, so that's the other transition. Um, it seems softer and gentler because it doesn't force people um, into senior status when at the time of their appointment, they thought, oh, I'm going to be able to stay on the court as long as I'm able. Are there any uh, conditions regarding the party um, to maintain some kind of party balance on the court or anything like that? Uh, an additional set of uh, reform proposals could try to treat the court the way several uh, um, independent agencies are treated, where by statute there are basically rules that, that um, no party can have um, uh, more than a, a, a one-vote margin over the other major party. The, the, the statutes are phrased in different ways, um, and... Uh, Congress itself has certain committees that by tradition have equal numbers uh, uh, of Republicans and Democrats, no matter who controls the, the chamber. Um, certain eth The Ethics Committee, I think, um, uh, uh, of the Senate has that composition. So there are a bunch of statutes already on the books that have rules about party affiliation for various agencies, typically independent agencies. You could imagine those rules in addition to the ones I've just uh, sketched out as also possibly um, uh, being part of a reform package. You know, it's interesting. The way that the, um, the court is now set up um, with these strategic resignation possibilities, if you think about it, that would tend to maintain the party balance on the court in its current state because people in general, if you're a, a, a Supreme Court justice, let's say you were appointed by a Democrat, and you yourself consider yourself a Democrat, then you're going to resign when there's a president that's a Democrat. 
So you'll be replaced by a Democrat. Same with the Republicans. So that would tend to keep things the way they are right now. But um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't do that, for example. And Sandra Day O'Connor did do that. Now, um, on the other hand, um, Scalia died unexpectedly, and um, as did Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She thought she was going to make it a little longer. Um, David Souter and... Uh, Harry Blackman and John Paul Stevens are all interesting because they basically came on the court as standard Republicans. Uh, the Republican Party shifted uh, from under their feet. They were there were Northern Republicans and the and Northern Republicans, Rockefeller Republicans, basically um, saw the party move away from them, and so. All three of them stepped down on the watch of a of Democratic presidents, uh, uh, Blackman uh, on Clinton's watch, and Souter and Stevens on Obama's watch. And by calling them Northern Democrats, I'm saying, oh, they're not altogether different from Jim Jeffords or Lincoln Chaffee. Um, uh, uh, New England Republicans who who became uh, Democrats in in the in the more overtly political realm. Yes, but but that's true that they were a different party in effect uh, when they retired than when they started. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, um, you know, if they were started off a Republican, then they became a Democrat. They're still going to try to resign under a Democrat. So whatever the court was at the time of their resignation, it would likely to be that way when they are replaced. That's that's my point. Right, it's but true only it so could be different from when they were right. nominated. But and and only some justices have been strategic that way, and others mm-hmm. weren't. Scalia wasn't, and and if he had been replaced by Garland, oh, you would have really seen it. It turned out that that didn't happen, and he got replaced by. Um, a, a kind of an acolyte, um, uh, 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 Gorsuch, yes. and and RBG um, also didn't strategically time her resignation, and she was replaced by someone of a very different perspective, Amy Coney Barrett, and that's why you're seeing a pressure campaign uh, being brought to bear on Justice Breyer, retire Breyer, these signs everywhere, and by the way, that seems counterproductive. Um, because even if he wanted to step down, maybe just for, for personal reasons, to enjoy the rest of his life, which he deserves to enjoy. And, and I clerked for him when he, uh, he was on the First Circuit, and I so admire him as a human being and, and just want him to be happy uh, for the rest of his life. But if he steps down now, even if it's not a, a strategic resignation. It'd be tainted by the, by the it, may be, it may be seen that way. So, so maybe I should even count that as point fourteen. Not only um, does my model eliminate um, strategic resignations, it tends to eliminate even the perception of strategic resignations, which is a good thing. So, yes, let's count that as an initial point. Fourteen, hooray. <laughs> Oh, and be, but before we go on, let me actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm at a few more possible advantages. Let's see how high I can count. So once John Roberts retires as Chief Justice, um, uh, uh, then my proposal would envision that the Chief Justiceship basically rotates. 
Everyone serves for 18 years, and in your last two years, you're the most senior uh, associate justice, and that basically means that you're the chief justice. And so everyone would get a chief justice uh, position, in effect, every associate justice, um, in their last uh, two years of of active service. Um, So, point 15, that's an advantage uh, uh, that's a virtue because it tends to, uh, once again, to regularize power across presidents. Right now, some presidents are lucky enough to have a vacancy, a uh, chief justice vacancy, fall open on their watch. They put a chief justice on. Chief justice has a lot of power today. John Roberts may end up being chief justice for 30 or 40 years. Um, but that's um, kind of an unevenness. Um, some presidents get it. Other presidents don't. It's very splotchy. Uh, my proposal, everyone gets two appointments every present, year one, year three of uh, every four-year term, and every one of those justices in his or her last two years gets a turn as chief, and that regularizes power, uh, uh, smooths things out as a smoothing function among presidents. That's 15. It also smooths things out within the court. That's point 16. Um, uh, um, everyone gets a turn as chief, um, uh, and... Um, Point 17, um, you get a turn as chief after you've already seen the system um, up front. Um, um, you're familiar with it. Um, and in fact, probably in your um, uh, uh, in, in the two years where you're the, the most senior uh, uh, justice who's not chief, years 14 to 16, the person who is chief is probably training you up a bit. And, and so you're able to grow into the position. Um, and that's not what we have now. Sometimes associate justices get promoted to chief, but they don't know they are. Um, and, and they may be auditioning for that, and that gives presidents too much power to, to pick which associate justices sucked up to them the most. Sometimes they come in uh, from the outside, um, an Earl Warren, but again, with no... Um, uh, inside knowledge of the court. So, so again, you, you know you're going to be chief from 16, year 16 to 18, and, and the, the current chief maybe starts to train you up from 14 to 16, and, and, and that's also a virtue. And so these points, so that's, I'm up to 17 now, 15, 16, and 17, they're not coincidences because that these are virtues because that's how most courts of appeals work. That's actually how the chief justice position in, in a lot of uh, um, apex courts, constitutional courts around the world work. Um, so I'm not just coming up with all these things just out of my own head. I'm looking at actual democratic practice. I'm tweaking it a little bit um, f- um, to fit the, the, the special things about the U.S. Supreme Court, like the number 18. Um, uh, and speaking of 18, I've just... Uh, I think it would be nice for symmetry purposes if we were able to get up to 18. Um, here's the 18th virtue. I identified things that Supreme Court um, senior justices um, could do. They could um, help the court um, decide what cases to hear. They could um, uh, pinch it if the court is short staff. They can do administrative things and ceremonial things. They can show the flag. They can meet 10th graders. But of course, I should have said, and I'm now saying, they can ride circuit. Um, they can take, um, which is a good function, to, to reconnect the center with the hinterlands, to, to uh, harken back to some of the initial vision of a Supreme Court um, uh, providing some connective tissue between the central government and, and folks in a far-flung republic. Uh, and 
um, that circuit writing idea, they can um, both help ex- um, pr- explain to, to folks out there, lower court judges with whom they're sitting, juries, um, uh, bar associations, local bar associations, what the world looks like to the Supreme Court. Um, and they can also, in effect, be listening posts, antenna, and then be able to report to their active colleagues you know, what uh, the soundings are um, out there um, in America. Uh, so, 18. Um, okay, so we've talked about the transition in general terms. Um, now, let's say that the Biden Commission recommends your proposal. And it's adopted by the, somehow, by some miracle. Maybe they listen to our last podcast and get rid of the filibuster and, uh, and get rid of, uh, and, and allow the statute to pass. And now it's implemented. Now, uh, some years down the road, the Republicans somehow gain their own trifecta. Um, and they decide, no, this has actually worked against us um, somehow in the court, or will work against us, or we don't like it, or just whatever. And they, they say, we're going to pass. We're going to pass a statute now to undo it. Right, and by trifecta, of course, this goes back to an, uh, one of our earlier conversations. We mean uh, the Republicans winning the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Correct. So, first of all, could they do it? Yes. How, one, one, how would it be done? Well, one virtue I think of my system is that it doesn't entrench this um, new approach. If it turns out to be mistaken in some way, uh, just as we transitioned into it. I think uh, by mere statute, I think we could transition out of it. So a lot would depend on whether this new model was basically seen by the citizenry, by uh, good lawyers, by the Supreme Court bar, by academics, by lower court judges, and even the justices themselves, senior and active, was seen as um, an improvement. And, And if it wasn't, I think it's a virtue that we could transition out of it. And if it is seen as an improvement, then even if the Republicans win the trifecta, House, Senate, presidency, so they could actually uh, change it by mere statute, maybe they'd choose not to. And that's going to be more likely if um, they were part of the political coalition that adopted the statute to begin with. Now you say, well, that's never going to happen. Well, it depends, again, on the transition rules. Maybe, for example, the transition rules are we're not even going to do this immediately. Um, the first president that's going to get this you know, automatic appointment in the first year is going to be the president who wins in 2024. Um, and if that was the, the, the statute, oh, well, the Republicans you know, might think to themselves, okay, we, we like our odds in 2024. Um, we're going to we're going to beat this Biden guy, or maybe he's not even going to be around. Maybe it's going to be Kamala Harris, or who knows? Um, so depending on how the thing is phased in, especially if it's phased in with a certain kind of veil of ignorance, even if it automatically gave Biden, let's say, an extra, an extra so to speak, slot in his third year, because it's passed, let's say, um, two years from now. Um, okay, that's just the first of many automatic um, biennial new justices, and most of them are going to be in the future, and we don't know who that president's going to be after in 2025 and 2027 and 2029, 2031, etc. Well, also, I think, you know, under the postulated scenario that we just raised, in other words, the Republicans win the trifecta, 
Why would they want to undo this? They're about to get two Supreme Court positions that they'll be able to confirm. You know, so exactly so. Would so. Be, you know, maybe they might do it at the end of their term or something like that. Maybe a lame duck. Congress would want to do it if they've lost the election. That means they have to, have to implement our earlier yeah, instagov. Right, uh, and that would look very stinky, wouldn't it? Well, that that there. I mean, I I think if recent history has proven anything, <laughs> it's that the Republicans can live with looking stinky. But uh, at any rate, so this is all this is all fascinating, and I think that uh, I'm hoping that we have a future podcast where we get into the details. Um, of all this but uh and here's one other thing that we're going to have to get into in maybe a future podcast we have not talked about the size and shape of the lower federal judiciary remember at the founding my claim was supreme court size and shape was very much influenced in effect by um lower court issues circuit writing issues um and even uh, uh, in, just independently of ideas about Supreme Court reform, a um, whole set of questions about whether we need more federal judges. I think we do. I think we don't, for example, have enough capacity to have jury trials, um, criminal and civil, and and the entire Bill of Rights was so fundamentally premised on jury trials, uh, criminal juries, civil juries, grand juries, um, uh, uh, and... Uh, so, uh, um, if we do need lots more federal judges, we, we have a larger population, we have had a litigation explosion, um, what should the, sh- the, the trajectory, the, sh- the shape of, of that increase be? And once again, there are the interesting transition questions, how much, um, um, will be kind of grabbed today by today's coalition where Democrats have the trifecta and how much of the ultimate expansion of the federal judiciary is going to be after the next presidential election, for example, when it's possible the Republicans could uh, control the nomination process. Um, and by the way, the Republicans, of course, even before the next presidential election, could win the Senate back. And that's going to affect um, the ability of a president, even if there were lots of new vacancies, well, well, how can you? Um, you uh, it's going to be very dif- different um, if you fa- if President Biden faces a, a Democratic Senate um, after the midterms, um, continues to face a Democratic Senate, or instead is is confronting a Republican Senate. And of course, we saw that situation with President Obama, who had difficulty uh, getting his judicial choices confirmed. So, just a comment, um, you know, about your your proposal. First of all, the commission in general, uh, these commissions are uh, subject to the accusation that it might be partisan. So, for example, if the commission comes up with a proposal, you can be sure that it's going to be scrutinized to see whether the Democrats have some inherent advantage in this proposal. And two things that I think uh, can be counter to that, one is that there are some conservatives on the commission but also from the point of view of your own proposal, um, this is not something that you just came up with yesterday. Uh, you've actually, although parts of it I think have been refined more recently, uh, particularly in the details, which we didn't really go into that much this time, um, but you've been writing about this for almost 20 years, isn't that right? Exactly so, uh, and um, it would be poetic if it were 18 years. In fact, it's actually 19 in 2002 uh, when there was a Republican in the White House, Steve Calabresi and I, 
And Steve is the co-founder of the Federal Society. Steve Calabresi and I uh, put an op-ed in the Washington Post in which we floated an early version of this idea that I'm now refining. Uh, and, and we co-authored it precisely because it wasn't some partisan scheme. And to repeat, a Republican was in the White House at that time. And our proposal... Uh, which we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll put up on the, the website, the, the, um, the initial op-ed, uh, had two main features. One, the, a magic 18-year idea um, uh, that we could have term limits for justices and 18 years would be the, the right number um, for all the reasons we've talked about. Right. Uh, and that this proposal would not require a constitutional amendment It could be done by a cleverly designed statute that would modify the job description, in effect, of the justices um, while preserving their life tenure, but basically making them active justices for 18 years. So lots of uh, grist for the mill. Um, And uh, the Biden commission will be very interesting to follow. And should uh, Professor Amar uh, testify there, I think we'll have an interesting report there. if not, the uh, commission can listen to this podcast. <laughs> Bravo. Thank you. Okay, great.